Alert Medic 1 respond. Box area 19 dead. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. My name's Ken, and this is my co-host. Hey, y'all. It's Moose. And we're here today to talk to a very special guest about traumatic brain injuries. Before we get started, I just wanted to share a little bit of a cool thing I did today. I went to a class down at MedStar Washington Hospital Center in D.C. and LVADS. It was a enlightening class. I got a lot of good information, a lot of good reinforcement on some things I had learned before. And I think it's a topic that we're really going to want to bring to you, the listener, to discuss. Oh, absolutely. So I think that's going to be a topic that we, not only do we get like some cardiothoracic surgeons and cardiovascular surgeons that actually cannulate these ECMO patients and these LVAD patients, but we are also going to get the perfusionists that really assist with when these devices are on. But I don't want to digress, so let's get started. Uh, so I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Brian Spiehoff. Dr. Brian Spiehoff earned his Doctor of Pharmacy from Albany College of Pharmacy and Health uh, Sciences in 2011. Afterward, he completed his pharmacy practice residency at Indiana University of Health and a critical care pharmacy residency at, at Memorial Hermann Texas Medical Center. He uh, practiced in neurocritical care and pharmacy management, and he's currently a clinical pharmacy specialist lead in stroke and neurology at Boston Medical Center. I had the pleasure of uh, working with Dr. Uh, Spiehoff at the Baby Medical Center when he was the neurocritical care pharmacist. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to talk about TBI. I think, you know, traumatic brain injury is one of the deadliest uh, uh, you can deal with in the pre-hospital setting, especially when it's a severe injury. Yeah. A few numbers that uh, I pulled from a, a paper that we're going to discuss later in a few other episodes, uh, traumatic brain injury is uh, an enormous uh, factor in our country. Annually, it leads to 2.2 million emergency department visits, at least to 280,000 hospitalizations and 52,000 deaths. And I think as pre-hospital clinicians, these are some of the things that are really difficult to handle, especially if we don't have aggressive airway means. Today, we're going to not only discuss a little bit of a background of what occurs uh, during that traumatic brain injury, but what interventions we can do to facilitate a better patient outcome. I think a good way to start this off is to just kind of define what a traumatic brain injury is. So essentially what we're talking about is when an outside force acts on the body in a way that disrupts the functioning of the brain. Would you agree that that's a pretty concise, uh, simple way to put it there, Doc? Yeah, I would say that's the, the easiest way to describe it. Yeah. So can you give us a little bit of a, you know, from a physiological standpoint, what actually occurs right, you know, right after that point of injury? I think there's some super smart people out there that will be able to go into the details of all the biochemical processes and everything that happened within the brain. But uh, essentially, once the brain gets injured, there's a, a couple things that we get concerned about. It's the disruption of the blood-brain barrier and the swelling that's going to occur within the brain itself, um, which doesn't happen immediately, but t- over maybe the first 24 hours really becomes the biggest concern. So I know that, you know, the brain can get compressed and there's uh, something called a herniation, that phenomenon. Can you go into that? Yeah. 
essentially, as I was kind of alluding to talking about the, uh, the intracranial pressures, at least from a pharmacy perspective, what we're trying to manage is that as intracranial pressures increase, you can increase the pressure overall on the brain itself. The brain is a closed system. So you have the skull and inside that skull, all you have is brain tissue, blood, and you have CSF, cerebral spinal fluid. As any one of those three things increase, that pressure overall increases. So thinking about brain injury, the first thing, two things that you see that can increase is one, the blood that can happen if you have a brain bleed. And two, the brain starts to swell from the overall injury and that gets overall bigger. So as those two things happen, there's nowhere else for the brain to go. So it can either do one of two things. It compresses in on itself and shuts off the blood vessels that can perfuse the brain. Or two, it goes out the hole either that you've created from the traumatic brain injury or it goes down the spinal column causing herniation and ultimately death. Brian, are there any physiologic processes that the body takes in order to try to mitigate some of this increased intracranial pressure or some of the swelling? The swelling itself is actually a complication of the brain trying to save what it can. And it's in a, like in a lot of processes, you have this overall inflammation process that just gets out of control. There is something called cerebral autoregulation, which uh, essentially is a process by which the brain makes sure that it tries to perfuse itself by increasing blood pressure to send more blood to the brain if it's getting starved for oxygen. Ultimately, in patients that have this bad intracranial pressure, the bad injury, you lose all cerebral autoregulation and the, the brain just uh, can't really protect itself like it can. So that leads us to various pharmacologic options to hopefully prevent further damage. Yeah, so let's go into that. You know, as pre-hospital providers, we uh, in paramedic school were introduced to, you know, two main drugs, I would say, right? Uh, you know, mannitol and uh, hypertonic saline. Let's start with mannitol. Yeah, so what we're talking about is kind of the, the Western, westernized or the, the American European way of uh, handling traumatic brain injury patients. One of the first things that we do from a pharmacologic standpoint is to give osmotic therapy. In general, osmotic therapy, the, the goal here is that you rapidly increase the concentration of a solute in the serum that cannot cross into the brain. And so by osmosis, uh, water that's in the brain is going to shift out and into the serum and hopefully decrease the overall volume of the brain enough that you're not going to have those bad pressures. So the first agent is mannitol. Mannitol is a sugar alcohol that does not cross the blood-brain barrier much. It has about a 20% cross, but not much. It is a uh, very useful agent because you can give this to patients who do not have central access. It's considered safe uh, with peripheral access. It's dosed uh, typically at one to one and a half grams per kilo. So for your average patient, that's going to be um, 75 grams or so up to 100 grams. And depending if you have a vial or bag, that's three vials or maybe uh, one bag of mannitol. One of the complications that we see with mannitol is acute kidney injury, and that's because it can actually crystallize uh, pretty rapidly. It can form crystals within the kidneys and cause AKI. So we uh, typically, when you're doing repeated dosing, not so much for EMS, but long-term dosing after maybe a day or two, we start to monitor the patient's serum osmols to make sure that we're not accumulating too much of the drug. Brian, is mannitol frequently used in the hospital or are there other therapies, maybe non-pharmacologic therapies that are more preferred in some instances? 
We are always going to try the non-pharmacologic uh, therapies first. Um, some things, especially for EMS, is elevating the head a little bit. Uh, what you, if you lay a patient flat, you give the opportunity for blood to kind of pull in the brain, which would increase the overall pressure. And the hospital will do uh, ventriculostomies, place actual tubes right, right into the ventricle of the brain to help drain fluid. You can decrease overall sensory information, but that's not so much in the acute stage. And then if somebody's really bad on the verge of herniating, we want to hyperventilate a patient. That will very quickly cause vasoconstriction in the brain and decrease the pressure. The problem there is it only lasts for a certain period of time. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Along the lines of mannitol, uh, yeah. you may have to kind of take a step outside of the area we're working and living in here for this question to really be applicable. But when would you see mannitol as being an appropriate agent for EMS to deliver? Yeah, I actually would support giving mannitol in the field, especially for patients with a GCS of less than eight. Somebody who requires intubation due to not being able to protect their airway, anything like that, severe head uh, penetrating head wounds, certainly you could consider also giving mannitol. I think the biggest thing that, that I run into with mannitol, and especially with, I think that would maybe be problematic with EMS, is that it can crystallize really rapidly in the, right in the vial. So you actually will have to like monitor that mannitol as soon as it crystallizes is being able to switch it out with stock, maybe even having a warmer at your uh, base area so that you can make sure that, that the mannitol doesn't uh, crystallize too much. So that's something that I remember from Bayview. Remember, like we had that heater right next to like our central area. And, and that would, I think from a logistical standpoint for EMS, that would definitely be something that would be difficult, right? Because we yeah. don't really have temperature control for any drugs. And that's a, a big problem with a lot of things that people in EMS want to get into. We don't have refrigeration. We yeah. don't have heating, stuff like that. Uh, along yeah. the lines, just as a, a side note for mannitol and logistics, is it a relatively expensive drug? Could that be an impedance for EMS? It's about as cheap as it gets uh, in, in the pharmacy world. I would say actually one of the things that we've run into historically over the past decade with mannitol is drug shortage. It's uh, in fact so cheap, nobody wants to produce it because they're not going to make money from it. Wow. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Any other Manitol questions there? No, no. I okay. think that's, uh, that was really good. That was great. Yeah, thank you for that. Awesome. Um, so how about uh, hypertonic saline? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so hypertonic saline is uh, is interesting, especially you know in the neurocritical care world. Where I, I see personally we're going more towards a sodium-based osmotic therapy. There's a little bit of a debate back and forth about which agent's better, sodium or Manitol. But hypertonic saline comes as a kind of a variety of commercially available products. There's a normal saline is 0.9%, has 154 milli equivalents in a liter of normal saline. As you get to hypertonic 3% sodium chloride that has 514 milli equivalents per liter. And then we have agents as concentrated as 23.4% sodium chloride, which has at 4,004 milliequivalents per liter. So very, very concentrated. In terms of dosing strategies, there's no clear dosing strategy out there. What we're often trying to do is just look at a patient's sodium and then raise it to the next level. So if a patient has a sodium of 140, we might try to bring them up to the 145 to 150 range or 150 to 155 and see how they react and just see you know what the overall benefit 
benefit is. I've gone as high as 165 um, in some of these patients to get their sodiums up. The benefits of sodium is it's not going to crystallize like you will have with the mannitol. Uh, the drawback is, is that sodium products of 3% or higher require central line. So that makes it a little bit more difficult to give rapidly. We tend to, in the hospital, give like 2% solutions that can be given peripherally, but that requires pharmacy to compound. And with the sodium administration, if I kind of followed what you were saying, does it really require checking blood levels to make sure you're administering the appropriate amount of saline? Or are you not so worried about that in the acute setting? In the acute setting, we're not necessarily going to check we're going to get sodiums with our basic uh, CMPs, BMPs that we're going to get for the patient anyways. In the initial setting, if somebody's acutely herniating, we're just going to give them maybe a 500 ml bolus of 3% or if they have central line, a uh, good central line of 23.4%, hopefully to see if there's a benefit. And then we'll check sodiums every maybe six hours as the patient gets stabilized to see where they're at and kind of trend sodium levels and correlate that with their, their mental status. So talking about a mental status, I think, you know, depending on the degree of injury, I think sedation is definitely something important in the, you know, the treatment of these patients. Can you uh, speak to a little bit about this, the agents that are preferred for uh, the TBI patients? This is kind of a loaded question. I think if you ask anybody, they're going to have different answers with sedation. I can tell you generally what we see and why we do it. First and foremost, sedation is beneficial for patients with traumatic brain injury because it, if you decrease the overall brain activity, the brain doesn't have to work quite as hard. It means it doesn't need as much blood, which means you decrease the volume of the brain uh, in that skull, so hopefully not as much pressure. Generally, what we'll see first is something called propofol, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with. goes by the fine name of milk of amnesia. We use propofol typically starting at a kind of a low-dose titrate up and try to use that to reduce the overall intracranial pressures. It's very effective at that. One of the drawbacks is, is as you uh, give more propofol, you drop the blood pressure. And if you drop the blood pressure too much, then that's less blood going to the brain. So it's this balance of trying to bring down the intracranial pressures in the brain and the blood pressure uh, and trying to not bring down the blood pressure too much. You can also use other agents. So if a patient's in pain, which you expect a patient with traumatic brain injury, especially if it's a multi-trauma like a car accident, something like that, pain increases intracranial pressures from stimulation. So we often give continuous infusions of fentanyl or hydromorphone or morphine. We can also use uh, continuous infusion benzodiazepines to help really suppress a patient's overall brain function. And then in extreme examples, we use something called pentobarb. Pentobarb, we do a pentobarb coma. This is where we essentially do the same thing as flatlining. Like if you ever do an EKG and you see somebody in asystole, it's flatlined. We do that to somebody's brain, flatline their brain function so that there's absolutely zero function, zero need for too much blood going to that brain. One of the drugs that we, do, you know, in Maryland, we just were given the ability to use is uh, ketamine. Yeah. Why or why not would ketamine be a good resource for these patients? Oh, ketamine. Very interesting. We're actually talking about this at work right now. So historically, ketamine was considered a no-no in traumatic brain injury because it can actually, it can theoretically increase intracranial pressures. 
There has been some data, small case series and case reports um, over the past couple of years where patients who are, have a very high intracranial pressure, they use ketamine as a bolus, and it does bring down ICPs. The data isn't there for continuous infusion ketamine. I would say right now it's a, still a, what I would consider a controversial topic and wouldn't be something that I would empirically jump to. I would stick maybe more towards... Uh, uh, Atomidate, which uh, do you guys uh, in where you are in Maryland, can you give Atomidate? Yeah, that's one of our yeah. drugs in our, uh, our side protocol. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what I would stick with only because it's, it's it's fairly controversial until more data comes out. I, I would be cautious using ketamine just because of the more historic uh, concerns. But uh, I know we're currently at Boston Medical Center evaluating ketamine infusions for some patients. And Atomidate, for at least in the RSI protocol, isn't something we'd be giving, you know, for sedation is purely for that RSI, which is something uh, that I do yeah. want to discuss with you at some point uh, regarding TBI. Yeah. The next question uh, that I wanted to ask is regarding the uh, hypertension. Is blood pressure management a key factor in this like, patient or no? If somebody's bleeding, if they've had a brain bleed or a traumatic brain injury where there's visible uh, blood on CT, usually we want people's blood pressure to be less than 160, maybe less than 140. It's less defined in traumatic brain injury as much as it is in spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage, but we typically do less than like 160 or 140. That being said, in some cases, we will have patients with such high intracranial pressures that we may bump their blood pressure up a little bit to try to perfuse their brain. Okay. And with that, since we talked about hypertension, I feel like now is kind of a good time to segue into some of these secondary factors that can really cause death in our TBI patients. We've talked about a little before the show, hypotension, hypoxia being two major killers. You mentioned hyper, hypoglycemia. Are there any other factors that are really major threats to our TBI patients? I think getting through the first 24 to 48 hours, making sure that we can keep patients, you know, normal glycemic as much as we can, keep their blood pressures where we can. Those are kind of the key things. Um, trying to keep the ICPs in a managed, those are our big things. Ultimately, traumatic brain injury becomes one of these unfortunate situations where if you can get somebody through that first 24 to 48 hours, usually from a overall mortality standpoint, they're more likely to survive. It's a question of what their functional status is going to be, what recovery are they going to have. And uh, in that first week, we're trying to figure out, is this going to be a meaningful recovery versus not? And if we're leaning towards not a meaningful recovery, then we have to have a conversation about the goals of care for patients. So it becomes one of those kind of interesting situations where the mortality may not, if they make it through that first hump, may not be from the traumatic brain injury as much as trying to determine what the overall outcome will be. Okay. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for uh, all of that. I mean, I think we have a bunch of other topics that we'd like we, to talk about. We do. We're definitely going to expand on that last topic in our next episode. I think that's a good Absolutely. segue for us to kind of leave on a cliffhanger when we talk about oh, the management excellent. of hypotension in these patients because it can certainly get kind of complicated. Yeah. So next time, uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a second episode, third episode on this, uh, some of the topics that we want to cover is definitely, you know, hypotension management in the TBI patient, the RSI drugs and, you know, what's preferred, what's not preferred for that aggressive airway management. Yeah. Uh, and finally, I think the long-term care, right? Like, yeah. Long-term care is very important. I think it'd also be good to talk a little bit about some of the predictors of morbidity and mortality in these patients. I think there's a lot yeah. we can get into with this. So we are really grateful for your time today. 
feel free to call in anytime and talk to us. We really enjoy it. I would. This was great. I had a bunch of fun. I'm more than happy to come back again. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. 